Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. So I started the day by essentially saying that uh, thinking about the Trinity matters because we're thinking about God and God matters. Um, but uh, actually, it's unhelpful to ask, what is the Trinity for? What is the purpose of the Trinity? Because the Trinity is God. And so just asking what is the purpose of God just sounds a bit of an arrogant sort of unhelpful thing to ask. But having said that, um, I think it is helpful to say, well, what does the Trinity do? And that, I think, is different from what is the Trinity for. Like, what does the Trinity do? Or how does the Trinity interact? Um, And how do we see the Trinity at work in creation and salvation? Because once we see um, how God acts, I think that actually reveals things about his nature. So it helps us to appreciate who he is more, rather than just reducing him to an end a means to an end. Um, But actually, I think it helps us to appreciate particular doctrines and uh, to to appreciate how we relate to God as well. And so what I'd like to do in this next session is think about two particular areas, um, and those areas are creation and salvation. I want to think about how the Trinity um, are involved in creation and salvation, how they work to create everything and to redeem everything. And what I'd like to do is get us into two groups, and they will be pretty big groups by virtue of us being quite large here. Um, but uh, within that group, you will have about sort of 10 to 15 minutes or so to answer a particular question. I want one group to think about creation, one group to think about salvation. And, um, and so for this whole session, I want to get you to think for about 10 to 15 minutes, and then I'll get you to feedback a little bit, and we'll explore those two areas and think about how knowing that we were created and saved by a God who is triune in nature uh, changes the whole way we think about um, our lives, our existence, our purpose, all that sort of stuff. So uh, we've got slightly uneven numbers so maybe we can take um maybe this front row here would you mind shifting over to this side for the moment joining this group and uh if we can have the creation group over here and salvation group over here um creation group uh so we are on page i don't know what number they don't have numbers um so yeah great so you'll see one that says session three creation and salvation then the next page has one says the trinity and creation and uh a little box with four columns in it. Um, I would like you to think about the question there. Uh, what do these verses, verses teach us about the activity of the Trinity in creation? That's your main sort of task. And then if you get through that, then go over to the next page where there's a question, what difference does it make to know we are created by a triune God? And just throw some ideas out there. Uh, salvation group, uh, then you on the next page after that. Again, you have four columns. What do these verses, verses teach us about the activity of the Trinity in salvation? And then the next page, what difference does it make to know we are saved by a triune God? So, creation group over here, salvation group over here, you four over there. Uh, let's take, I'll check in after 10 minutes, see how you're getting on. Um, cool. Well, let's start with the creation group. Um, So, uh, I gave you four passages. Um, I mean, there are four of many we could have chosen. Um, But what do they... I mean, either you can talk me through each one um, or throw out a collective thoughts, whatever works best for you. But what do these four passages tell us about the activity of the Trinity in creation? It says, 
it, it talks about uh, let us make mankind in our image, and then also it says so God created mankind in His own image. Mm. So it kind of has the unity of, of an ourself, of like mm. the, the plurality there, yeah. and also a oneness of, of His His likeness. Yeah. So can everyone hear this, by the way? Great. Yep. Okay. Um, so I, I could kind of figure out that through the Trinity, there's kind of different bits of himself are portrayed in different bits of creation, mm. but they're all kind of one, if that makes sense. Sure, so sure. like in ourselves, we have the kind of the humanity and the, the flesh of kind of the Jesus, and then we have kind of the, the spiritual kind of mm, mm, thing. I don't mm. really get that, but... Sure, yeah, 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 yeah. Kind of and then kind of with the Father, we get our kind of our desires and our emotion and our kind of love and that kind of thing. But yeah, it's definitely all three of them working in unison and yep. to, to make everything. Great. And I think that's the most important point. So the most important point there is that you have God, one, makes mankind in his image, but also says, let us do this. Um, and so there's this unity and diversity there. And I think the... Um, I mean, where you were talking about the different elements of us, um, I suspect some people probably do think the spirit creates our spiritual side and the father creates a different body. But I, you don't really get that in this passage, do you? So yeah. that might be a, um, <clears throat> an allegorizing of the, but which, which isn't here, but I'm sure people have said that throughout church history. But, but I think what we can see is certainly that there's this plurality, this diversity within unity of the Godhead, but then creates us. Um, let, me, let us make mankind in our own image, male and female, who created them one. So the, the God who is diversity and unity combined creates mankind one, but diverse as well, made to be one. So, um, yeah. And, and there's this uh, so singular God. You've got the spirit of God hovering over the waters. You've got the word of God, which obviously just sounds like it just means a word there. But then suddenly when you get to think about John 1... Well, oh, that's the next passage, so I won't say too much there, but well, obviously the word becomes more than just a word, doesn't it? So, yeah, great. Uh, any thoughts on John 1? Certainly not hierarchy of value in the sense that one of them is more important than another. Yeah, 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 yeah. And what I love about John 1 is it's basically like the author has taken Genesis 1-1, and in the beginning was the word, uh, or in the beginning God created the heavens and earth. It's like he's just taken that sentence and gone, let's just 
like break that in two for a moment and it's like he puts all this stuff into the middle of it so it's like in the beginning God created and he just goes <laughs> in the beginning was the word and the world was with God and he created everything and it's like he just suddenly takes this thing that's just all these mysterious elements of like I don't know what was in the mind of the author of Genesis when he was writing hang on God says let's make man in his in in our image but he also is one like, I don't know what they were trying to think there but it's like John just goes let me make this really clear let's go right back to the beginning Genesis 1-1 and he just goes bam like and he puts a whole load of Trinitarian theology in there um yeah, and as you've drawn out, I, mean, I guess there's this, um, the, the word was with God, so there's a, a sort of distinction, isn't there? Um, but the word was God, so there's also uh, unity. So, um, I mean, two of the key distinction, unity and deity, I mean, you get them all here, really, don't you? Because there's, this, there's a distinction, it's with God, which suggests there's some kind of difference, but also he is God, and so it suggests a similarity. Not a, not a similarity, you know. They are the same, in one sense, yeah. And everything cre- was created through the word, but the word was not himself created. Um, yeah, brilliant. Hebrews 1. Any thoughts on Hebrews 1? Again, we said, through whom he that the outworking of what Jesus has then been integral in the Yeah, 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 sure, sure. I see what you're saying, yes. So everything was created through him, and then once everything is created, there's then a whole story that, that takes place with this thing then being reconciled back to Jesus. Um, yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. Well, I guess there are a few things. Um, I so I don't think this passage is trying to draw clear distinctions between the members of the Trinity so much as to say they did it all together and, and the Father did it through the Son. And I think part of the point of Hebrews one, um, uh, which actually, so last time we did the theology matters, we did the whole day on Hebrews, and we did quite most of the first session on Hebrews one actually. So it might be worth checking that out. Um, if you're interested, but I, th- I think part of the point of Hebrews 1 is to show that Jesus is supreme and unlike anyone else. So I think it's rather than trying to say this is how the inner workings of God works, I think it's trying to say Jesus is better than the angels, better than any human being that's ever lived, because to no other angel has it ever been said, today you're my son, or you know, you're the heir of all things. So it's rather than trying to draw a distinction between the Godhead, it's trying to draw a distinction between Jesus and everyone else. So I think that's kind of what's going on there. Um, uh, but also, I think within the, story, the whole story of Scripture, you do get a sense in which the members of the Trinity are constantly trying to um, draw attention to the others, worship others, prefer the others over themselves. And you get this thing in 1 Corinthians 15, where it talks about um, 
at the end, at the renewal of all things, um, death will be put under the feet of Jesus, uh, and then he will hand over the keys of the kingdom to his father, so that the father will be all in all, and you kind of, there's this weird shared victory, but it comes by Jesus submitting to the father, but also death being forced to submit to Jesus by, you know, it's, it, the whole thing is this mutual teamwork, um, which just goes against any sense that one of them is important, um, or more important than the others, um, but I guess you can create something collaboratively together that then becomes the inheritance of bad analogy. Well, maybe, I don't know, I'm making it up at the top of my head, so I'll probably say it and then be like, oh, no, I'm a heretic. But I don't know. Um, like, if I, I could, it's conceivable that I could build something with my dad and we build it together and we have complete uh, teamwork in it and then he says, one day this will all be yours. And, and so the thing that we've made together then, like... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but I, yeah, I guess I wouldn't want to push that too far, but um, yes, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Psalm 33. Any thoughts on this one? No thoughts on something. <laughs> Go for it, Ruth. It's about the presence of the Father and the Spirit of Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you've got all three members of the Trinity here. So by the word, which, yeah, becomes a loaded term, doesn't it, in the light of Jesus, of the Lord, which is capitalised because it's, it's translating the Hebrew word for Yahweh, um, uh, where the heavens made their starry host by the breath spirit of his mouth. So, yeah. So, mm, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, yes. So essentially, we have all three of the members of the Trinity involved in creation um, in, in various different ways. And I don't think that the scriptures allow us to, you know, draw too many distinctions and say, well, um, the father lays the bricks, but the son holds the tools or, you know, whatever. I don't think he's quite saying that. I think there is just a teamwork between them. But, uh, yeah. As... When we see the word spirit, we interpret it as... Oh, sorry. No, 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 no. No, no. No, I think I, what I would say is um, the... the uh, so the question was, any time we see the word word, should we see that as Jesus? Um, no, I think because uh, there will be times when... Um, You've got to look at how it's used. So sometimes in the Old Testament, there'll be, a, you know, this guy spoke the words to the, and clearly word just means the things that came out of his mouth. Um, I think when it's um, the word of God, um, often it's portrayed as an active force that achieves things. Um, and it seems to be, particularly the, the later on you get in, well, no, actually it's, it's bang right there in creation. He creates by his word, but that tradition then carries on. Um, so the, the prophets particularly talk about the word as if it is more than just, you know, words that come out of um, his mouth. And the poetic interpreters, particularly the poets and the, 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 the psalmists and those sorts of things, they seem to develop that. And I think that's all building to, to Jesus. I don't think that every reference to the word in the Old Testament will be, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, Psalms, uh, you know, Psalm 119, your word is a lamp unto my feet. Um, I think that's talking about the, the script of... Um, yeah, of, of, of the Bible. Mm. Um, I don't know if I really mean this too much, but when you look at the, the creed, yep. 
The first kind of sentence is that I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the universe. Mm-hmm. That's kind of making a distinction between the Creator as mm-hmm. the Father mm-hmm. and the kind of Son of the Spirit as being. <coughs> yep. So often I think what the creeds are doing, uh, uh, they're leading you on a process. Um, and so rather than um, saying one point and then making the next point um, as it stands alone, I think they're saying, well, accept this and now let me expand upon this. So, so actually, as we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and all that is seen and unseen, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. So it's, it's, it sounds like it's a separate premise, but then actually the end of that stanza, um, through him all things were made, it sort of takes you back to, to think, oh, okay, he's not making two points here. They were both involved. Um, and uh, and then actually, yeah, so I, I think it's building upon each other. It's not trying to make a clear distinction between the, the roles. Um, let's, I'm keen to get to the salvation some. So let's just turn over the page to the next, pa- uh, the next one. There's lots we could say about um, the Trinity in creation. Let me just add a couple of extra bits and then just think about what difference this makes um, to us. So actually, um, various theologians have said um, not only... Well, they've, they've drawn people's attention to triadic patterns within the creation narrative. Um, so we see that God creates in three different ways. So he speaks, uh, he says, let there be, and his word achieves something. Uh, God works, so he separates light and dark, the waters, etc. He creates animals and humans, different categories of people. But then actually he creates through others as well. So he uses the activity of his creatures. So he gets the earth to produce vegetation. He gets the lights to govern the sky. He, you know, all this sort of thing. He uses the things that he has created um, with a sense of agency. And Robert Leatham summarises this view. Actually, he's drawing on a lot of work by Colin Gunton, who was a brilliant professor at King's College until he sadly died a few years ago. But he does a lot of stuff, great stuff, on the Trinity and creation. And Leatham summarises it by saying, this God who created the universe does not work in a monolithic way. His order is varied. It is threefold, but one. His work shows diversity in unity and unity in its diversity. This God loves order and variety together. This reflects the chapter's record of God himself. The triadic manner of the earth's formation reflects the nature of its creator. He is a relational being. This is implicit from the very start. Notice the distinction between the God who creates the heavens and the earth, the spirit of God who hovers over the face of the waters, and the speech or word of God who issues the fiat, let there be light. Of course, it's unlikely that the author and original readers would have understood the Spirit of God in a personalised way due to the heavy stress in the Old Testament of the uniqueness of the one God. The Hebrew word roch can mean spirit, wind or breath, but many commentators understand it to refer to the energy of God. And what he's saying is that even there at the beginning, you get this threefold nature. God doesn't work in just one way. He works in multiple different ways through different agents, and you get hints of the Trinity. Now, it's, it's doubtful that the authors were thinking, oh yeah, this is three and one here, this is Trinity. Um, but they wrote things as they were being inspired and now as we look back at it we see oh wow everything about the way God works screams trinity when you know what you're looking for and I think that's quite beautiful and it's actually completely different to the way that other gods would have worked and Genesis if we had time actually at some point I'd like to do a whole theology matters on Genesis 1 to probably 1 to 3 um Uh, thinking about these sorts of things Um, but if you look at Genesis 1 and 2 and compare them to other creation narratives uh, that were written by other people at the similar sorts of time it seems like 
it's trying to go head to head with various other creation stories that people had to say, no, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, <laughs> and, and God is supreme. Um, and, and actually, a lot of the ancient creation narratives in the, um, uh, in the ancient Near East would depict uh, God creating mankind to either complete something in God uh, or to supplement something, or man would be created as slaves to God, um, or something like that. I mean, I said in my sermon the other day that in most religions, life precedes love, by which I mean um, most of the gods were not loving. They either created mankind in order to give them love or to be the object of their love or to be slaves. <laughs> um, in Christianity, actually, it's the other way around. Love precedes life. God has eternally been love, and he creates us out of the overflow of his love, not to meet some kind of deficiency in himself. And I think that's quite powerful. So what difference does it make to know we are created by a triune God? Any thoughts? Just throw out some thoughts. Either group can chip in. Relationship. Relationship? Uh, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So God is relationship and he created us for relationship with him. Yeah. 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 Yeah, God is not some needy, insecure God who's like, oh, I really need to get something from these people, otherwise I'm, you know, I'm a gibbering wreck. Like we, and, 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 and so the flip side of that is that we don't have to complete God. Like We don't have to think it's about us somehow perfecting God. He's perfect anyway. He will be fine without us, <laughs> but he creates us out of his love and to experience his love. Um, yeah, and we don't have to strive to perfect God, uh, nor is God insecure. I mean, Acts, Acts chapter 17, when Paul's preaching, he's like... Um, God is not looking for people to serve him as if he's in need of anything. <laughs> like, uh, he gives us life and breath and everything else. He's, it's the opposite way around. It's not about us working our way up to him. Um, he comes down to us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're put here in a particular... Well, Acts 17 says the same thing, actually, doesn't it? So um, uh, uh, God apportions the the boundaries of the time and space in which we live, and he gives us everything. Yeah. And we're given purpose. I really love that, that we're made with dignity. So the other ancient gods would make mankind as slaves to go and rule on their behalf, but with no sense of relationship. It's just you're here for a task and not a lot more. But we're made with dignity, purpose, to represent this God. Let us make mankind in our image, not just like let's make mankind as a a helpful workforce. (laughs) Like let's make mankind to represent us in our diversity and unity and and sense of love and relationship. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So the community of the Trinity, uh, that of which we are part of the overflow, um, is a brilliant model for 
for us. Which is why in John 17, where Jesus prays, I pray that they will be one as we are one. Like the, the, the best life is a life modeled on the Trinity. Um, unity and diversity and fused together in, in love. Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. I think the Trinity... Um, uh, so the Trinity doesn't say what's important is unity and... Well, as I said, said the other week, like God doesn't call us to unity and homogeneity. You must all look the same and therefore be unified. It's like, actually, you're different and unified. Um, and just as we don't look at the, the Trinity and say, well this member of the Trinity is more important than this member of the Trinity. Actually, there's a real sharing of equality and value. Um, so there's a value of worth that we all hold, and it's not right to... Yeah, God didn't make man and then say, oh, I guess I'll make a sort of separate thing that's less representative of me, woman. Like, that's not how it works. Let us make mankind in our image. One thing, mankind, male and female, he made them. Both in his image, equally in his image. Yeah. This is powerful, isn't it? When you start to think about this. No, I am created by a God like this, rather than Marduk or uh, any other singular God or any one of, like, a mass of gods who are warring for attention or whatever. Knowing I'm made by a God of love for a purpose, it just fills me with a sense of dignity and value and worth and, yeah. Security. In what sense? Do you want to unpack that? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, I think the... Um, I mean, obviously, you could push that too far and say... Um, and, and emphasise the distinction over the unity. Um, I'm not saying that's what you're doing. Absolutely not at all. Um, but I think uh, actually recognising the fact that God works in different ways. And so, of course, he's made us to be people who relate to him in different ways and who process things in different ways. And some of us are more right brain than left brain. And some of us uh, find it easier to engage with the spirit. And some of us love just reading word and engaging a more intellectual level. Uh, and I think that's part of the diversity for which he's created us, but all unified around one. Yeah, cool. Let's move on to the salvation thing. Um, uh, and, and some of this will be similar, but, uh, but hopefully helpful. Um, Salvation group. How is the Trinity involved in salvation? <coughs> Anyone want to kick us off? In the first column, uh, it talks about um, peace with God through Jesus Christ, and then it talks about God's love being poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Mm. So we can see Jesus, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Mm. Yeah. 
Absolutely. So do you see that? So you've got all three members of the Trinity there. <clears throat> we get peace with God through Jesus. Um, but then the gospel doesn't stop at the cross like, or at the resurrection. Actually, it gets put into our hearts. The love of God is not only shown to us from a distance, it gets internalised into us as the Holy Spirit is put into us. Yeah, yeah great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a tricky one, isn't it? Because I think, I think, um, I think quite often in the New Testament. <laughs> yeah, I'm just thinking if I'm. I'll say it, and then I'll decide if I'm heretical, or you can vote if I'm heretical. So the, the, it's sort of whether whether the word God refers to the Trinity God or whether it refers to the Father. I guess is part of the question. So I'll, I'll give you my answer and then you can tell me if I'm a heretic. No, I, I, I think most often when I read uh, the phrase God in the Bible, I tend to think of God the Father. Um, and I think that's probably the way we're meant to read it, particularly in a passage like this, because it is saying we get feast, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It seems to be making a distinction. Um, and so it seems to be that we are reconciled to the Father because of the work of the Son, and that's made... Uh, real to us by the power of the Spirit. But, of course, thinking Trinitarianly, um, anytime I see the word God and my mind goes to Father, I shouldn't just think that's the totality of God. So I should constantly be drawn back to, I, I think that is referring to the Father. Um, and so when I see the word God, I, I automatically think of the Father. But then I, our mind should immediately go... Um, uh, I, I worship the God who has made himself known through Jesus and you know, made himself alive through the Spirit. And these sorts of things, like our mind should constantly, whichever member of the Trinity we go to, we should almost like, immediately, instinctively just bounce off to the others and, and uh, never really see anyone in isolation. But, but you, know, you reflect on Jesus and you should immediately just raise your eyes and think, oh, there's, there's the Father and the Spirit as well, and they're all working together. Yeah. Um, Okay, any further thoughts on, well, the next one, Romans 8? Any thoughts on Romans 8? So again, all three members of the Trinity involved. So God, the Father, sent the Son so that we can live according to the Spirit. Um, the Spirit raised the Son, and the Spirit now lives in us. So the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us, as it says in Ephesians. And Yeah. Powerful, isn't it? Hmm. Galatians 4. Any thoughts on that one? Yeah. Um, but then also very importantly, God sent the Spirit, uh, the Spirit of the Son. 
<laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Thanks for that. Um, so we're out of time. And <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. Uh, oh, actually, we're shorter on time than I thought. But anyway, um, uh, yeah, yeah. So we get, well, God sends the Son, um, and he talks about the Spirit of the Son. And I think this is, it, it's mysterious. It's unclear. I don't, I don't know. Um, I think what's clear is it, it emphasises that they are somehow of the same substance. Um, and I think that's important, but I'm not sure I would... I don't, I don't know that I would take it much further than that. Um, I think it's just emphasising the relationship between the Spirit and the Son is so close. Um, but what I really like about this passage is the fact that the Father sends the Son, but, um, and we get adopted as sons, um, but the Father is a father before we get adopted as sons. So he, sometimes it's easy to think that he is the Father because he's our Father because we're adopted as sons. And of course he is our Father because that's how Jesus taught us to pray. But whether or not we were here, he would still be the Father. And so the Father sends the Son so that we might become sons uh, into that relationship that already exists and predates us uh, from eternity past. Um, and also the Spirit cries to the Father and makes us sons of the Father as well. So again, there's this whole involvement of the, of the Spirit in everything. Um, and then Hebrews 9, verse 14, any thoughts on that? <coughs> I mean, it's similar to, to previous things, really. So you get the blood of Christ who offered himself through the Spirit to the Father. Um, you see all three members of the Trinity involved in salvation. Um, and in particular, it emphasizes Christ's involvement in the process. So the Father sends, um, but some people would say, would, would read the gospel as if it's the Father's initiative and the Son is some, will, some unwilling victim who just gets caught up in this plan. And so you get ideas of the cross that people find so distasteful, and rightfully so, um, because I think they're bad at view of the cross, which is like the, the Father's just out to punish the Son, and the Son's like, why me? You know, and it's not that, because both the Father sends the Son, but the, the Son offers himself through the Spirit as well. So there's this, just this mutuality involved in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Mm. Well, I think it's it's both, isn't it? Because when he says, um, and I think this is the point, really, that, that it's a shared will, a shared um, passion and a shared plan um, and of course Jesus ends the prayer by saying um, so if it's possible take the cup away from me yet yeah, not my will but yours um, and I think in in that moment it's not like a resignation to oh fine I don't get a say in this like I think it's more um, actually I no I, I'm going to do this I'm going to do this um, because I know that this reason that you sent me is, is good and I'm going to choose to do this and so when you then see in Hebrews it says for the joy set before him Christ endured the cross you get a sense there that he was really like no I'm going to do this because of this goal so I, I, I think I think Jesus went through incredible turmoil in Gethsemane um, 
but we shouldn't read that as if the father and the son had completely different plans, rather that the son was really wrestling with the pain of the plan, but came to a point of saying, no, we're of one will on this, um, I'm, I'm going to choose to do it. Yeah. You can just go to the next uh, page, and then... <clears throat> I mean, I think this, the idea that God is a God of love and his love predates the cross is, uh, is quite powerful, really, because I think God would have been a God of love whether he'd saved us or not, uh, but his salvation is an incredible demonstration of his love and an invitation into it, an invitation to share it. Now, here's this um, analogy from a guy called Joshua Ryan Butler, whose book, The Pursuing God, actually is absolutely brilliant. I haven't recommended it on the list here because it's not really about the Trinity, but it's, it's really, really great, and I'd highly recommend it. Uh, a great um, book on God's character generally. Um, really, really well written and engaging but he uses this analogy he says say a family is trapped in a forest fire so a helicopter team undertakes a rescue one fireman flies the helicopter over the smoky blaze to coordinate the operation and see the big picture a second fireman descends on a rope into the billowing smoke below to track down the family and stand with them once he locates the family he wraps the rope around them attaching them to himself and they are lifted up together from the blaze into safety in this rescue operation, the first fireman looks like the father, who can see the whole field unclouded from above to sovereignly orchestrate the plan. The second fireman looks like the son, who descends into our world ablaze to find us, the, the human family, and identify with us most deeply in the darkness of the grave. The spirit is like the rope, who mediates the presence of the father to Jesus, even in his distance, and raises Jesus and the human family with him from sin, death, and the grave into the presence of the father. Of course, like all analogies, this one falls short. The spirit is a person, not a thing, like the rope. And the Father, Son, and Spirit are not separate individuals, but the one God, sharing a divine nature and essence as one being. Yet the point of the analogy is this. The rescue mission requires the interdependent action um, of all three persons. Each has a distinct and necessary role, and yet, zooming... Uh, out, that should be, uh, they are undertaking one united joint action, the rescue of the human family. We miss what is happening if we put Jesus against God or God against Jesus. The Father, Son and Spirit are working together at the cross of one will and nature in a united joint action for the redemption of the world. I think that's a brilliant summary of the interaction of the Trinity and actually interestingly going back to the question about how useful analogies are I like the way that he uses the analogy and says this is flawed and it's flawed because of x y and z but here are the good points about it so maybe this is a good model for how to do it um, but I think this tells us a whole load of things um, God is love he would have been love even if he'd not saved us uh, and yet he reveals his love incredibly through the cross um, I think that is really powerful, the idea that the father is not sacrificing the son without the son's um, desire, uh, without the son's um, plan and coordinated involvement in it. Um, and I think when people do reject the idea of the cross because it seems abhorrent, this idea that God is just punishing the son as if the son is a victim in it, I think that's, that's clearly not the point. And they've missed part of the trinity uh, the son is involved in this as well and the spirit is involved in this as well and they take on different levels of pain and different levels of grief but the father is 
he grieves through it. He wasn't the one on the cross uh, because there is a distinction of the roles, but actually there's a grief that the father went through as well. Uh, but the son was the one on the cross and they played those particular roles together um, so that they could achieve our salvation. We can't play the members of the Trinity against one another. Um, instead, we should see them all involved together. Let's just go to the next page very quickly and then we'll just take a break uh, before the fourth session. <coughs> And this comes back to what I said earlier about um, Irenaeus's idea of the the, the uh, Word and the Spirit, the Son and the Spirit, being like the two hands of God. Um, as the Son and the Spirit have eternally proceeded from the Father, like uh, water from a fountain, like light from a lamp, they proceed into this world as the two hands of God reaching down, but they join together in the act of salvation. But they have different roles. Um, They do different activities. The Son comes forth in incarnation, takes on the flesh in a way that the others don't. The Spirit comes forth at Pentecost, but both achieve the one goal of, of the Father being God with us, but in different ways. The Son accomplishes salvation for us through his obedience his death and his resurrection but he doesn't do it in isolation the spirit enables everything that the son does and the spirit applies salvation to us so the son accomplishes salvation the spirit applies salvation and there's a little table there we won't run through but it basically shows how uh, both of the hands of the father um, the son and the spirit um, achieve the same things for us but in different ways in partnership together and you can look at that in a moment uh, but John Owen puts it like this just to, to end this session he says when God designed the great and glorious work of recovering fallen man and the saving of sinners to the praise of the glory of his grace he appointed in his infinite wisdom two great means thereof the one was the giving his son for them and the other was the giving his spirit to them and hereby was way made for manifestation of the glory of the whole blessed Trinity which is the utmost end of all the works of God. So in creation and salvation, we see the work of a triune God. And when we reflect on what it means to be created and saved by a God like that, as opposed to any other God who does not already exist in love and community and perfect joined will, I think it causes us to marvel afresh at creation and salvation. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.